We're so glad that you've tuned into our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Brandon Billups, and I'm the high school pastor here at Rolling Hills. And as we've been in our current series, Celebrating God's Goodness, we've been exploring the biblical perspective on celebration thankfulness, and God's goodness. We were created to be representatives of Christ here on earth, and that's why it's so incredibly important that our lives reflect our maker. Because when we live differently, we ultimately are showing God's goodness through the way we live. So dive into 1 Thessalonians 4 with us today as we learn what God's word has to say on this very topic. We are so glad you're here. Well, welcome again. Uh, we're glad that you're here. I'm, I'm, I don't do this very often. I want to thank the guys who are leading up here. You guys need to, yeah, say thank you. Y'all help them. These guys do a great job. They get here early um, and they, they just serve and they give so much. And so we're, we're just thankful for those, for folks that lead us in worship. Uh, and they, they do a great job. So thank you guys. And, um, so I won't do it next week. So if you're serving next week's leading worship, this is also for you next week. And so... Um, Anyway, so we're thankful just to just have such incredible folks that serve in so many different places. If you have your worship guide, I want to go ahead and ask you to grab that. And if you have your Bibles or if you're going to use your phone and an app there, go ahead and grab that. We're going to open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been in a series over the past several weeks. This is the fourth week of, of a series called Celebrating God's Goodness and where we're working through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this is the five chapters there. We'll wrap it up next week with stories of Thanksgiving. It's gonna be an awesome Sunday. But if, over the past several weeks, what we did week, week one is we talked about, or we talked about how Paul celebrates the goodness of God in the lives of these believers that he's writing this letter to, in, in the lives of others. And as we did that, we took just a second just to kind of take a flyover of Rolling Hills. And so if you haven't been here, Rolling Hills has been here for about 18 years. We started in, in an apartment building uh, in Franklin and then has grown to, to what God's done. But even more than just growing to the four campuses, the number of lives that have been transformed as a part of that is just incredible in the way that we continue to get to serve the community. So we get to talk about that and celebrate those lives and those kind of things that God has done over the past 18 years as Rolling Hills is. Uh, gotten its start. And week two, uh, in chapter two of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, we talked about how celebrating God's goodness begins in our heart, the hearts that are transformed by and trust in the goodness of God is where that, that kind of comes out of, is that we celebrate out of the fact that we've been transformed and that we trust in the goodness of God. Week three, or, or last week, uh, we talked about celebrating God's goodness, how we celebrate in the church, when we, we talk about God's goodness in places like this and in small groups, that it encourages us as the church to continue in God's goodness that we're encouraged by God's goodness to continue to, to serve and to do those things. And it can, it can bring light into a darkness when we, uh, when we celebrate God, God's goodness as the church and in the church and the, the ways that we do that. And this week, in chapter four, what I hope that we see as we work through this, and if you have your worship guide, we're just kind of right there at the beginning is kind of the main idea for us, is that celebrating God's goodness becomes the fuel to continue to live faithful lives of holiness, love, and hope. As we work through this passage, what I, what I hope that we see today is that, that celebrating God's goodness, as we do so in this place, as we open up God's word and celebrate all the things that he's done in us and around us, that celebrating God's goodness becomes the fuel to continue to live lives, live faithful lives of holiness and love and hope. A couple of years ago, and I really don't even know the year. It's been a number of years, at least 10. I, I completed my first uh, half marathon. Also, side note, my only half marathon. Um, 
And uh, to say it was miserable would be an understatement, right? And that's a long story, but ultimately it's because I didn't train very well and then I decided I was still going to run. And so like, it, it, was, it was not great. And, but along the way, if you've ever run something like that or been a part of it, or maybe you haven't, and I'm just gonna get, give you insight on this. Um, th- there's, there's points along the way, especially in a longer race where, where there's people that are there and they're cheering you on. And, and it really does, like I didn't think that it was gonna do anything, but it really does, especially when they handed me food. I was like, like, that's awesome. Let's keep doing that. Like chicken sandwich next one or something. But it was fun. I mean, th- those kind of that part of it was fun. And, and especially, uh, uh, you know, as they do this, they cheer the runners on. And, and in the closing stretch, it gets a lot more intense, right? And, and for me, what happened was, uh, was this, that it, it, in that closing stretch, the, the cheers really fueled me to finish. I mean, I could see the finish line. It was like point one from the turn into the finish line. And, and they started, people started cheering. And I was like, well, maybe I don't look as bad as I feel right now. You know, like I think I had a cramp like from here to here. Um, if your body can be a cramp, I was a cramp, right? And so, I mean, I was like, man, I'm, I must be killing it right now. And so I get about halfway through that point one and this lady who's barely breathing hard trots past me. I think she cheated, but uh, she, she trots past me and everybody kind of surrounds her and they wrap her in this like space blanket and they celebrate her. I was like, what did she do, right? She just cheated. She was the finisher of the marathon um, and uh, she beat me in the point one. It was miserable. It was miserable. It was like the worst, worst experience of life. And, but in that moment, like literally before all of that happened, the cheers really kind of did. They did their job. They worked. The encouragement of the crowd that was around truly did its job. And, and giving me the little bit that I needed, you're like, it was right there. Like, yeah, but you don't understand what's happening in my body. I was kind of like, I'm done. Just, you know, I'm gonna leave my kids without a father at this point is what's gonna happen. But celebrating was the fuel to continue in that moment. And this morning, as we continue working through this passage, celebrating God's goodness, it becomes the fuel to continue to live faithful lives of holiness and love and hope. And before we dive in, let me pray for us and just then we'll open up God's word together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the word that came flesh and that you offered your life as a sacrifice for our sins. God, as we open up your word, we pray that we would be encouraged by it as we celebrate your goodness, that it would be the fuel that would, that would give us what we need to live the lives that you've called us to live, the lives of holiness and love and hope. And we pray this morning that you would move in, in, in our hearts and transform our hearts and our minds as we sit under your word. We come to it as, as our authority. We are not an authority over it, Father, but we submit to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we've been working through this, what we see in Paul's letter here is a regular pattern for what Paul does throughout the letters that he writes to the churches in the New Testament. You see it in, in Ephesians and in Romans, there's a, like the first half of the letter, he kind of sends these encouragements. He talks about all this, the things that God has done. And, and like Romans, the first 11 chapters, it's all this rich theology of, of what Christ has done. And it's encouraging to the, to the people that he's writing to. And then he takes a move, there, there's like a pivot in the, and I know 
know everybody's tired of the word pivot through COVID, but it's a, it's a good word for what happened here. He pivots right here in chapter 11 of, of Romans and in First Thessalonians chapter four, there's a movement and in Ephesians, he does the same thing where he goes from, he takes the turn where it's suddenly from talking about the theology and all the things that God has done to how we live in light of that theology in light of what God has done, in light of the, the things that God has done for us. And so Paul is hinted towards what he's going to talk about in Thessalonians uh, up until this point. Even if you go back to the end of chapter three, as he prays, he's really telling us in that prayer what he's about to talk about. But after you get into chapter four, he's not hinting towards it. He's full on giving us instructions, giving the believers instructions of what it looks to live a life that's been transformed by the goodness of God that we've talked about in the past three chapters. He's gonna address some things that are very concrete. What I love about scripture and especially Paul as he, as he writes to these, he's writing to a group of people and he doesn't address abstract or, or, abstract or vague things. He, he addresses a, a concrete issues as he walks through this. In the very beginning, what he does is he tells us that he, he challenges them to continue. He challenges these Thessalonian believers to continue to walk in holiness. As he makes this turn in chapter four, he challenges these believers to walk in holiness. If you go to the first verses there, one and two of chapter four, it says this, as, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you, now we ask you and urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Jesus. And just to make sure that we don't confuse it, like just in, in what we're saying, he, he's urging them, right? He's asking them and urging them to live a life in response to this, to, to what they've already been talking about, to the lives that have been transformed. And, and really what he does, Paul's instructions for Christian living is established on and motivated by the gospel that has transformed their lives, the work of Jesus on their behalf. And so to, just to make sure we get that right, they're not, they're not living in order to please God because God has already laid his blessing on them, because he's looked on them and despite them, he's given them love and favor in light of what God has done. They live this way. And he says this urging, and I think that's one of those words, I think in a lot of times, especially for somebody, I mean, if you're like an Enneagram eight, which is I think the most awesome, I think that's what we say about ourselves. That was a joke for non and pro Enneagram folks. So don't get mad at me and write me letters. But if you're, if you're, like, a, if you're like me, hearing somebody say you ought to do something or that you should or urge you to do something, there's like these little bristles that pop up. You're like, I don't ought to do anything but what I want to do, right? Maybe some of you are in that place. Maybe you're rule followers and you're like, T, don't say that. You're gonna get in trouble. Like, I don't care, right? This, but what he's urging them to is not something to do, not to do something that they don't want to. When he urges them in this moment, what he's saying is, hey, listen, because Christ has transformed your heart and given you a new heart, this is what your heart longs to do. That urging is not to do something anti your, your, your personality or anti who you are. It's this is in line with who you are because of what Christ has done. And there's three things that he says to walk in holiness separated from the culture you can fill these out in your worship guide if you want to. Separated from the culture, submitting to God's will, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Pick up in verse three, it says this. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, 
that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not, with, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And on this matter, and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother and sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Verse 7, for God did not call us to, impu- to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, if anyone who rejects, therefore, excuse me, therefore, anyone who rejects this instructions does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gave him, who gave us, <laughs> I'm going to have to have somebody read for me, who gives you his spirit. So he tells him, right, he says, listen, the first thing that, you want, that he instructs him is to live lives that are separated from the culture. And that's really what the word holy means. When he says, I want you to live holy lives, lives of holiness separated from the culture, the word holy truly means to live set apart, belonging to God, set apart from the world. And what Paul urges these believers to do and for us today is to live lives that are committed to holiness, that are consistent with the teachings of who who Jesus is and, and the new life that we have in Christ. What it means is to set ourselves apart from the culture and the world and all of its values and the systems that are a part of our world. And specifically, Paul points to what we don't, I mean, I know we didn't talk about it when I was a kid very often. What he's pointing to here is is to live lives of sexual purity in contrast to the promiscuous and over-sexualized culture that surrounded them, that was destructive to individuals and families and the culture at large. And honestly, you you read this and you realize that what he's talking to, to the Thessalonians is a lot like the world that we live in today. I mean, it takes different forms, right? But it was the same. They lived in a place that was, that was dripping with this over-sexualized culture and the issues, the, the way that it looked, it presented itself a little bit different. But the, the instructions for them is the same for us, to live holy lives and to remove yourself from the values that the culture sets. And one specific, right? He's not talking about vague things. One specific thing that he says is to live lives of purity when it comes to, your, to, to sexual matters. Across the board, he gives these specific things in these areas of lives, but it is challenging them here to live in contrast to the way that our culture lives. And if you have kids, I mean, this is a part of what you've got to talk to them about right now because they're inundated by it. And if you turn on the television, and we don't have commercials like we used to, but but... I mean, they're there, you're inundated by it. The access that we have, it's, it's, it floods our culture. And he says, this, he, listen, to live holy lives, you've gotta separate yourselves from the values of our culture, specifically from these values, from these things that the culture says are fine, but they're destroying the life that God has put inside of you. And secondly, he says, submit to God's will. I love it, he says this, he said, it's God's will that you be sanctified. In verse seven, he says, for God did not call us to live impure, to be impure, but to live holy lives. I love the fact that God's word over and over and in the next chapter, next week, we'll even talk about this, another spot where he gives specifics of what his will is for our lives. Because I don't know about you, but I spent time all my life and then there's moments this week where I'm like, God, what is your will for my life? And, And we can go back to scripture because it says right here, what's God's will for my life? That I live a holy life. You want to know what God's will is? All the other things. Maybe, maybe you don't have a specific of what job or what things you're supposed to do. What he wants us to do, what his will for our lives is that we live holy lives. 
Sanctified is what he, the word he uses, which is another word for holy, but it also is the process of becoming holy. It's the process of God weeding out those things. I had a conversation uh, just to, right before the service of God, how God weeds out those things in our lives that, that keep us from growing and, and becoming more like him. And that's the process of sanctification, the process of us becoming more and more holy. And he reminds us because we need that reminder because we creep back into those places, those old patterns of living that are part of who we were before Christ transformed us into that selfishness, into those things that we did before. But he's urging them to keep submitting to the Lord, to keep submitting to the Lord, to trusting him. If you listen to Paul's words, you can hear that encouragement too. It's one of the things that I love about this passage is that he's not telling them, he's not wagging his finger at them as if they're not doing it. He's saying, hey, you're doing it. You're doing a great job. Just keep it up. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Just do it more. Dive in. Don't, don't hold back those little things that, that, that you're holding back, that part of your life that you want to hold on to. No, give God that. Keep going. The race is not over. Keep going. And lastly, he tells them there that, that they don't do it on their own. That as they, as they work, as they, as they pursue God to live this life of holiness, that it's not under their own power. He says that he's given us his, his spirit to empower us. Ezekiel chapter 36 says this. And this is a, kind of a foretelling of what Christ would do in the Old Testament. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. Listen, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, to be careful to keep my laws. I'm gonna put my own spirit inside of you. I'm gonna call you to holiness, to walk in a manner that's worthy, that's holy and, and growing in holiness, but I'm not gonna leave you on your own to do it. I'm gonna give you my spirit to walk inside of you and move you to walk in holiness. And so when he's urging again, that goes back to that urging, he's urging them to live the life that God has already put inside of you. This is who you are. So often we come to church to, and the, thing, the process is that, that we come to church so that we can get rid of the things that we don't want to live or the way that we want, to, we're getting rid of the ways that we really want to live. That you're coming in here and I'm telling you to do something that you don't really want to do. I don't believe that. I believe that if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've, if you've trusted Jesus for salvation, then what I'm telling you is to live the life and what I'm encouraging you with his word is to live the life that God has already put inside of you. I'm not telling you to do something you don't want to do. I'm encouraging your heart to do the very thing that is created to do. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you're here this morning, you're like, faith in Jesus, what does that mean, T? What I can tell you is that as you're hearing it, maybe what you're, what you're pushing back for, what, what's, what's stirring in your heart is that longing for that relationship that's been broken by sin and by rebellion to be restored with Jesus. That yeah, right now, what I'm trying, what these words are words that you don't want to do. But when Christ takes over your heart, when you put your faith in him, he gives you a new heart, new desires, a new hope urges us to walk in that holiness. One of my favorite passages is 1 Peter, verse, or 2 Peter chapter one. It says, his divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life 
through our knowledge of him by trusting him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Believer, that sin that you keep struggling with, that over and over you think you're not making any, any headway, he's given us everything that we need. And when we urge each other and encourage each other and celebrate God's goodness, it, it allows us to continue to finish the race and walk in holiness and love and in hope. And second, he talks about love. If you keep going in the passage, in verse nine, he picks up and he's talking about love. He's, he's, he talks about loving one another, continuing to encourage them to love one another like they have been doing. I'm gonna give you all of these real quick and then we'll, we'll go back and work through a little bit. Like they have been doing now more than ever, quietly and consistently displaying God's grace. This is what he says. He says, love one another just like you have been doing. Do it more now, now more than ever, quietly and consistently displaying God's grace. Picking up in verse nine, it says this. Now about your love for one another. We don't need to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Here again, he's saying, good job. He's, hey, hey you're doing a, a great job, just like you have been doing. Keep doing it. It's been a year that since he's left. And when we talked about this just a couple weeks ago, it, we estimate that Paul left and, and he sent back Timothy. And now Timothy's come back to give this report. And it's been about a year since he left. And this report that he gets from Timothy, he's like, man, you're doing a great job. After this full year of us being away, maybe a little bit more, you followed Christ's example that we taught you and you're living this life of love. You're loving one another selflessly and it's evident everybody's talking about it. I wanna urge you to do that more and more is the end of verse 10. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. You've crushed it, but don't give up, don't grow weary. In Galatians, Paul writes this to the, to the church that's there. Those, those believers, he says, let us not grow weary in doing good for at the proper time we will re reap the harvest if we don't give up. He says, let's not give up. Don't grow weary. And he says, listen, there's, for, for them and for us, especially for us in the midst of launching a campus out here, there's been so much work. So many people have worked so hard to get this thing off the ground. I mean, just over a year ago, we began to talk about it and announce it and, and now it come to fruition just in September as we launch this campus and there's so much that's happened. And Paul's words to this group of believers is the same words to us. Don't give up now. Don't grow weary now. There's so much more to be done. Keep loving each other. Uh, the, the phrase that I, that I came across this week is that we rest, but we don't grow weary. You rest, but you don't grow weary. There's moments where you're tired and we rest, but we don't grow weary and give up. We continue to love just like we have now even more. Instructs them to continue, but how does he tell them to, to continue to do so? He says, quietly and consistently displaying God's grace. Listen, verse 11, it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. 
so that your daily life may, may win respect of the outsiders and so that you will not be a de- dependent on anyone. We have things planned. Just yesterday, we had over 40 people. with some pictures of serving yesterday. Had over 40 people here serving this school. We wiped down every desktop, every doorknob. Everything was cleaned. It was awesome. It smelled like Clorox wipes. It was fantastic. We raked leaves and we cut grass and we did other projects around the, around the school. And it was, it was awesome. And we're not going to give up on those things. We're going to continue to do, we've got things planned and we're going to continue to do things in the city. But do you know what Paul says right here? The way that we're going to win this community for Christ, the way that we're going to let them know who Jesus is, is not by the events that we plan, even though we're going to continue to do those things. It's going to be by individuals. It's going to be by individuals quietly and consistently displaying the grace of God with our families, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with the local businesses that are around here, with the, with the local officials, quietly and consistently displaying God's grace to say, hey, listen, we're not just here to stir things up or to, to start something that we're not gonna finish or to make a splash. We are literally for Columbia. We're for this town. We're for this community. And, and we're, not, we're not here just to make a splash. We're here to serve and we're here to stay. Quietly and consistently displaying God's grace to everyone that we're around. He says, love and don't give up. Don't give up. Keep loving just like you have been. Do even more now, quietly and consistently displaying God's grace. And then lastly, he says, you want to continue as we, as it becomes the fuel, they celebrate it becomes the fuel for them to continue to live these holy lives of love and of hope, in verse 13, that we rest in hope. Corrie ten Boom says, this, says it this way. She says, look around and you'll be distressed. Look inside and you'll be depressed, but look to Jesus who is our hope and you'll find rest. That we rest in hope. Paul does, what Paul does in the last couple of verses of this passage is to attempt to encourage the Thessalonian believers about loss. Again, not vague things. He's talking about something very specific. And, and if you remember like what happens in this passage, like these guys, just a year before, they heard the message of the gospel and they responded. And we don't know how big the church is at this point, but we know that, that most of the people who are reading this letter would know who Paul is because they had spent some time with him. Even though the church has grown, there's so many people that would know who he is. And over that year, these people who trusted Christ for salvation, they've lost family members, whether it was because of disease or or old age. Some of it we know is because they were persecuted and and their lives were taken for the sake of the gospel. But But again, a year ago, they had not heard about Jesus. And what we know from chapter one is that they had worshiped these pagan gods and and the the Greek gods of the mythologies that we've listened to and learned about when we were in high school and and middle school. So those are the gods that they've worshiped. And on the other side of death for them is no hope. And so Paul writes to these believers who he loves. He says, listen, I want you to grieve, but don't despair. I I want you to have hope to rest in hope, grieving, but not despairing. In, first Thess- in, in chapter four, verse 13, it says this, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
I'm really thankful that Paul doesn't say, dry up those tears. Uh, I'm not sure that I could have handled that because uh, I have a hard time with tears personally. Um, not my own. I'm a pretty passionate fella, so um, tears are part of the emotional roller coaster that I experience on a pretty regular basis. Just play a, a video of uh, a veteran coming home and uh, his kids, you know, hugging him. I'm, I mean, I'm just weeping moment, like in the moment. But I don't like your tears. Uh, because tears mean problems and problems need fixing. And so I go to fixing mode, right? So that tears dry up because I don't know how to handle myself when you cry, right? Just ask my wife. It's, it's a miserable experience for her. But Paul doesn't say, don't cry. He doesn't say, hey, just, he doesn't say dry it up. Just act like nothing's happened. You'd be emotional stoics. That's not what he says. He says, I want you to grieve as those who have hope. And so that lets me off the, off the hook. When you cry, I don't have to fix it. What he says, because we, we should feel the weight of the pain, the weight and the pain of loss, because it's real. And it's not just loss of an individual. Sometimes, I mean, obviously this is what he's talking about, but there's so much loss for us. There's loss of dreams for many of us. There's loss of, of, of jobs. There's loss of, of family that, that have been estranged for one reason or another. There's so much loss that we experience and it's okay for us to grieve. He says, we just don't grieve without hope. Grieve. Be those who grieve without despairing because we believe that death has been defeated particularly when it comes to, to grieving and experiencing the weight of that grief and the loss of, a, of somebody that we love, we believe that death has been defeated. Verse 14, it says, we believe Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. What gives us hope is that Jesus was victorious over sin and death. And we can grieve as those who have hope because of Jesus's victory. What's incredible is that not only does he tell us that we can grieve, we can be those who grieve with hope, but he gives us a play-by-play -play of what it's gonna look like at the end. Verse 15, it says, according to the Lord's word, he's telling them this is what God says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven and allow, with the loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet's call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, and after that, we who are still alive are and, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will be with the Lord forever. He says, we're going to be with the Lord. We, those who have fallen asleep in death and those who are left, will all be together with him forever. So we don't have to grieve as those who are without hope. If you've lost loved ones, if you've lost family members who, who, who you love dearly, you don't grieve without despairing because we believe that Jesus defeated death. And that the last thing that he tells them is to encourage each other with the truth. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
this good news, this, the goodness of God that, he would, that he's going to restore all things at the end of time, that, that good news that, that those who have trusted him and have fallen asleep in death, that have trusted Christ for salvation will be with him forever. That's good news for us. And it's not good news to be hoarded. It's good news to be shared with one another that when others are hurting, when others are experiencing loss, that we wrap our arms around. And that's why we've put so much emphasis on being in community groups and being in groups where we, where we circle up together and we lock arms with each other and we pray with each other and we put our arms around each other when, when we're experiencing trouble and trial. Because we weren't meant to go at it alone. We're meant to encourage each other with these words because it's precisely in these moments when I've lost someone, when something has gone the way that I did not expect it to go, that I need you to wrap your arms around me, that you need your brothers and sisters. You need me to come alongside you and say, God says this for us. It's pretty easy for me to laugh today at the fact um, that the people at the end of that marathon were not cheering for me. It's funny in the moment, right? But the moment that lady passed me there, and um, again, she wasn't even breathing hard. I don't know that she actually. And I literally collapsed across the finish line and they wrapped her in that space blanket that she really didn't need. And I'm on the edge of like dying and leaving again my kids fatherless. It's pretty bad. Maybe this is something that I should bring up with my counselor next week. <laughs> I was legitimately encouraged to finish. Before all of that happened and it's funny and blah, blah, blah. It was just the spark that I needed. And for us, especially when it comes to the encouraging one another, it may, it may be just the spark that we need for a brother and sister in Christ to encourage us with God's word to continue to walk and live a life of holiness and love and hope right now in the middle of our lives and all the things that we face. It may be just the thing that we need is to, to hear that God has called us and, and encourages us and he's given us each other to encourage one another. It may be just the spark that we need to continue in the race that he's called us to, living a holy life of love and hope. I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna ask our um, ushers to come forward. And we've got some special things kind of at the end, but I wanna kind of give us a moment of quiet. And so uh, just asking those ushers to come forward and then um, I'll pray for the close and pray for our offering as it's, um, as it's collected. But I wanna give us just a moment of quiet before we do so. And what, I'm, what I pray in this moment of, of just quiet for us is that we would just hear God's word of encouragement. That we would be reminded that he has not left us alone, but he's surrounded us with each other to be those cheerleaders. God, you are so good to us. You've given us life when 
according to your word, we were running the opposite direction. But now that you've given us new life, God, you've called us to live that life that reflects on the outside what you've done on the inside. And we thank you that you've not left us alone to do that. You gave us your spirit and you gave us each other to encourage one another and to walk alongside each other. And Father, we pray that we would be a church that lives holy lives that in increasing measure, we become more and more like you. And we love this community and those that we're around and our families deeper and deeper. It's more selflessly and selflessly. And then we would lock arms in those desperate moments when we truly need each other with a word of encouragement. And we thank you for what you're doing and what we get to be a part of. We thank you for these gifts this morning as the Offering is, is taken, God, that you would use these gifts and those that use these gifts for your glory and you would bless those who give faithfully and sacrificially, consistently, so that we can do what you've called us to do here in Columbia. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History, parenting podcast, men's leadership network, RH women's as you go podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date with what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.